It used to be that parents sent their children to school to prepare them for the years ahead. This meant in part that students would not only gain knowledge of various disciplines, but learn also to contend with the abrasions of life. But suppose instead that parents and college administrators attempted to safeguard any chance of the weakest of students ever feeling uncomfortable. Could society sustain? I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 it's trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Things have changed. And not for the better. At least according to some societal observers concerned about a new generation of easily offended, easily threatened persons that demand that others adhere to their views. Or worse still, that others adhere to their feelings. Ironically, although they claim an orthodoxy of tolerance, their critics point out that they exhibit the opposite, for they demand the silencing of contrary thought. Interestingly, they are hypervigilant in searching for microaggressions, but dismissive and even hostile to the rigors of logical debate. Feelings are paramount for these people and consequently, even in the hallowed halls of many colleges and universities, students, often aided by administrators, are demanding protection from words and concepts they don't like. It would appear to some that many in this generation are psychologically, intellectually, and culturally fragile. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great honor to invite to Watching America Greg Lukianoff with his co-writer, Jonathan Haidt. They have written a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Now, to put that in perspective, it is a reference to a book that came out, oh, in the late 80s, early 90s, by a man called Alan Bloom, who wrote a very, very important tomb known as The Closing of the American Mind. Now, I should point out that um, my guest, Greg Lukianoff, is in fact a self-described liberal. Uh, at one time in 2010, he described himself as a pro-choice liberal, and yet he has been getting all kinds of responses, both he and Jonathan Haidt has been getting all types of response from the left and the right regarding this particular work. It is an examination of what is happening in the classroom. So before I go any further, let me say, welcome, Greg, Luke Leonoff. I'm still <laughs> destroying your name. How, do, how does great. one say it? 
It's uh, Greg Lukyanov. Um, apparently, when my dad came to this country, people were supposed to know, know that an I and an A is the Russian stands for the Russian letter Ya. Yeah. Okay, I've got Lukyanov, it. I've got yeah. it. That one. Okay. All I have to do is is just get a sampling of that and drop it in throughout this, and we'll be okay for the rest of the show. <laughs> if, if you don't mind, I, I wonder if you would grant me the indulgence of telling a, a little anecdote from an experience I had in a class, which I think is very indicative of the very thing that you and Jonathan have been addressing uh, with what's happening in schools and academia and perhaps with an entire generation. I was uh, doing the introduction for one of my courses and I like my students in general to have some semblance of an idea of who I am. And I described myself as an academic gypsy. And I didn't think any more of it. And I was referring to the fact that I've lectured on five continents and on the East Coast and West Coast. I've taught at the graduate and undergraduate level in the United States. Thought nothing about it. And then I saw a woman in the front row kind of huffy and the leg was twisting and the ankle was vibrating back and forth. And she was giving me expressions of tremendous concern on her part about evidently something I had done. I wasn't sure what it was. Class comes to a near end and she says, I can't take it anymore. Look at me. So I looked at her and she rose her hand and I said, yes. She says, do you realize what you've done? I go, um, no, other than just give an introduction and tell you what we're going to be doing for the semester. You've marginalized the people group. I said, I, I have. What are you talking about? You said a marginalizing term for a people group and you know what it is. Now, in truth, I did not know what it was. So I'm thinking, well, uh, before you make this accusation, can you help me to understand exactly what have I done? I don't want to say the word. I say, well, can you say part of the word? I think there should be an apology. I said, I'm not going to apologize unless you tell me what I'm apologizing for. What what have I said? Just It rhymes with ipsy. So I deduced that by ipsy, she meant gypsy. So I said, you mean gypsy? You just said the word again. I said, why can't I say the word? Because you are hurting people who have been put upon throughout the centuries. I said, no, I'm not. I, I, I described the word gypsy and myself as an academic gypsy, meaning that I move from one uh, academic environment to another. That's, that's all. They, they're, they're nomadic. You shouldn't say that. I said, why shouldn't I say that? I have actually friends who have been gypsy. So I couldn't figure out what was going on. Then another girl chimed in. And so it was like an, an, an avalanche now. And then a, fr- an, a male joined. Hey, dude, man, you shouldn't do that in the classroom. That's wrong, man. That's the, like, you know, dissing the people. I'm thinking, what in places has gone on? Now, now, I've seen this wave coming, I have to tell you, Greg, for the last 15 years. But it was in full force at that point, and, and I don't think it's ebbed. So uh, I now find myself and colleagues are finding themselves in the same predicament of second-guessing virtually everything they have to say. And it is making teaching less enjoyable than it used to be. There is no more liberty. There's no more license to even employ humor. And that, sir, is why I love your book. So tell us, why did you write it? Well, um, I'm the peculiar lawyer who went to law school specifically to do uh, First Amendment freedom of speech work. Uh, And I graduated from uh, law school back in 2000. And I went looking for a First Amendment job, and I ended up finding, uh, they actually ended up finding me, I ended up with this job as the first legal director of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, also known as FIRE. And I spent the first chunk of my career uh, fighting uh, largely administrative censorship. Um, administrators were the ones who were getting everybody in trouble. But even back in 2001, it was surprisingly easy for professors and students to get in trouble for what they said. Just generally, it was coming from administrators, not from, not from students. 
Uh, and then sometime around 2013, 2014, seemingly overnight, we started seeing kind of like what you're talking about um, happening on campus at a fever pitch that essentially professors were coming to us with just awful stories about just sort of like a verbal landmine um, situation going on on campus. So we're fellow students. You started hearing the first things about students demanding uh, trigger warnings or disinvitations of people that they didn't like speaking on their campus, um, the idea of passing microaggression policies. And for those of us who've been working on the front lines on campus, it was extremely sudden. And it was everybody who, who, who does this work was like, what, did something just, like, did a bomb just go off? What, mm. what on earth just mm. happened to, to the mm. student population? Precisely. So, so I'd had a theory for a long time um, based, and this, this is where it gets a little complicated, um, rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, that, uh, and cognitive behavioral therapy is an intervention for anxiety and depression in which you sort of talk back to your more exaggerated thoughts. Um, and I'm someone who's personally greatly benefited about it. I talk about that in some sort of detail um, in the book. And, I, and as I'm trying to get myself uh, from, out of a deep depression, I'm teaching myself not to overgeneralize and not to catastrophize, not to do all of these little mental habits that can make you depressed and anxious. Um, and I was noticing that administrators were modeling this behavior all the time. However, um, students didn't seem to be buying it. They seemed to be more rolling their eyes at this sort of like hyper, um, uh, the, the hypersensitive way of, 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 of communicating. And then sometime around 2013, 2014, we, we saw this suddenly uh, appear on campus uh, like a flash. And I realized it's like, oh, no, it's almost as if they've adopted everything I was afraid they'd adopt. It's all personalized. It's all overgeneralized. It's mm-hmm. all catastrophized. It's all, by, it's all good versus evil. Um, and I brought this idea to Jonathan Haidt saying that, you know, like, if this is, if, the, if we're really seeing what I think we're seeing, this is going to mean a big crackdown on speech and a big increase in anxiety and depression on campus. Um, and he, to my shock, Jonathan, um, who I was already a big fan of his writing, loved the idea. We did a big article for it in 2015, a year later, for The Atlantic. <laughs> and things got so much worse on campus. We actually were, we thought that we were done with the article. We were totally fine. It was a really popular article. Uh, but things got so much worse on campus that we decided we needed to write this book. And it really is, the whole book is trying to figure out what was so different about this incoming class of 2013-2014. And what you were running into was this new sort of social justice style of argumentation that's all more or less about repackaging uh, uh, word policing with, with a very strong with a very strong emphasis on ad hominems. Um, right. If, and, if I can just interject here, I, sure. driving home that day, I, w- I was incensed trying to think, like, what happened? What was that about? And then I began to realize that what was happening by the student was there was a lot of needs being fulfilled in her. Number one, she could take on an authority figure and try and bring the authority figure down uh, amongst an audience with peers, which she did with me. Then uh, she had the uh, self-virtue, as she saw it, of defending the people who ironically do not feel that, by and large, they need to be defended for a term that they're perfectly comfortable with. And at the same time, she could uh, rally a a, a chorus of supporters for herself. So it was Mm -hmm. a win, win, win for her, but it was detrimental for the university or the academy. Absolutely. And we talk about this, it's something um, uh, two scholars that we cite uh, several times in the book talk about this as the um, creation of a culture of victimhood, um, mm. which we talk in the book um, more about it being a culture of moral dependency, that essentially this is a, um, a, a group of students who had a more intermediated childhood, a more intermediated, so that there was always someone in power to appeal to. 
and that the way you argue um, uh, in this environment is essentially to make your your case as sympathetic as possible to someone in power to both defend uh, what you believe or protect you from hearing things that you don't want to hear or to establish yourself as being heroic, which is, I think is what that student was trying to do. Right. Right. Now, you talk about the, the things which are banded about in popular culture, um, almost ad nauseum now because we, we encounter them, but they really need examination. Microaggressions, trigger warnings, etc. And then you also go on to talk about what's what you describe as vindictive protectiveness. Would you yes. mind starting with microaggressions for a few of our friends perhaps listening who might not understand what that means? Sure. And, and, and there's some irony in, in this is some people who haven't actually read my work assume that I'm just dismissive of the whole concept of microaggressions. And the, the thing I always have to start out by explaining is like, I actually take the concept of microaggressions very seriously. And microaggressions are, are generally just um, usually small, relatively, um, uh, re- relatively small, uh, oftentimes unconscious slights uh, by which we insult people on the basis of background, race or gender. Um, so, you know, the classic example is someone who uh, seems floored that uh, the person that, that a black person they were talking to is articulate and they repeat this over and over again is sort of like the classic microaggression because mm-hmm. it gives that uncomfortable feeling that somehow that's what's surprising about that. And that's definitely where I have the most sympathy for microaggressions, because I do think we say things that are stupid or insensitive and we make people feel um, uh, less included uh, by saying some of these dumb things. But that's why microaggressions are a good thing for academic study. <laughs> That's why they're, they're a good topic for doing psychological experiments to see how much effect they actually have or, or when it's just a misunderstanding. As soon as they actually start becoming university policy, you end up with a very predictable result um, that they start just looking like opinions that administrators or students prefer. So, for example, at UC and uh, in, in the UC system, including uh, UCLA, University of California, some of the things they define microaggressions include um, America is a land of opportunity because that's implying that if you, uh, at least allegedly implying that if you didn't make it, it's your own fault. Um, I think the best person sh- should get the job. That's considered a microaggression against affirmative action and, and, and so on. And so while I definitely have a lot of sympathy for the concept of microaggressions, um, I think we've made it too easy to say the wrong thing on campus. And we're actually showing a profound lack of charity. And that's what, one of the things that was happening to you was rather than assume good intentions, assume that someone isn't trying to like uh, insult somebody, you just immediately go to the least charitable interpretation of what mm. they're saying, mm. um, because you've been taught this oversimplified, as we also talk in the book, good versus evil dynamic. We had uh, a few weeks ago, We, I presume you may be familiar with the so-called squared uh, academic hoax with uh, Peter Boghossian and yes. Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. And Peter Boghossian said um, something which, which really stayed in my mind. He said he spoke about the, the, the loss of an appreciation for nuance in argumentation. Uh, and, and, and that's exactly what you're talking about, this immediate black and white, take your team, you're on, the, on this side or that side, and God help the person who has some variable of appreciation for the opposition, because if they do, then their own are going to attack them, uh, which just perpetuates fear uh, on all levels. And the way we formulated the book um, to try to make it as simple and digestible is saying it's as if we were giving a generation of students and young people the world's worst (laughs) 
advice that could ever be imagined. Yeah. And so we formulate this as a, a, a fake guru that we go to talk to, and all the advice he gives us we call the great untruths. And the third one is that life is a battle between good people and evil people. <laughs> yeah. And the and the idea that, that uh, all throughout my life, um, I felt like a lot of what you'd see in art or in education was about uh, greater moral complexity, about mm-hmm. sort of like understand that people have uh, a mixture of motivations and everybody to some degree is good and horrible and indifferent and apathetic and all sorts of different messy ways. And it's been replaced um, by a much more old-fashioned idea of there are the um, oppressed and there are the uh, oppressors and you have to pick a side and well, if I figure out... It's Star Wars. It's, you know, the avenging yeah. the Jedi, you know. Is this... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What are the other two? You've mentioned the third component to uh, the major untruths. What What are the first two? Let's Let's visit that. That's fascinating. Yeah, so the first untruth is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, <laughs> which is, which is a, a play, of course, on the Nietzsche that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Now, right. of course, we have people who don't seem to be get what we're saying, saying like, oh, surely there are things that can, um, challenges that can actually leave you permanently crippled. And we're like, yes, of course, what we're saying, though, is you shouldn't uh, presume that anything that actually challenges you is going to hurt you, that actually it could actually, there, there was a, in every wisdom culture globally and, and formally in both the States and Britain, there was a sense that, you know, Challenge can be good for uh, everything from your body to your spirit. And when you look at a lot of and what you ran into in, in that classroom was if you do actually believe that people are as fragile as is presumed sometimes uh, at universities, then people could be really psychologically harmed by hearing you uh, stereotyping, using the term gypsy, like the idea that you could actually be that fragile, that that would... Academic gypsy, yeah. Yeah, academic gypsy, exactly, that, that, that would permanently wound you. And it's, it's interesting, and that's where we come to the idea of vindictive protectiveness, that essentially... If you have a model of all these other people out there, usually it's not the person speaking. It's someone who's claiming to like heroically be speaking on their behalf. All these people are very psychologically fragile. And if you say this, this unintended slight, it's going to do actual psychological harm to them. Um, then, yes, of course, you're justified in, in, in doing your best to protect them. But there's many problems with that, not the least of which is it's not true. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. um, and the only way it becomes true is if you start actually convincing yourself that words can harm you in this way. Uh, and the second great untruth um, is uh, uh, always trust your feelings, <laughs> which is very, very Star Warsy. Right. And it sounds initially appealing when people hear it. Hmm. And we talk about both ideas in modern psychology and ideas in ancient philosophy um, that uh, stand the test of time. And the idea that uh, even though it sounds romantically nice that your feelings are always right, a lot of growing up, a lot of becoming wise, a lot of success in life, a lot of satisfaction in life comes from delaying the need of gratification, for actually questioning um, what you feel, trying to figure out, what, what am I angry about what you just said to me, or am I angry mm. about some other entirely different thing? But meanwhile, on campuses, we do seem to be cultivating a culture where uh, I'm angry, and that's enough, and you have to apologize because you made me angry. It's irrelevant what your intention was. Um, you've angered me, and therefore I, I am owed some kind of uh, some kind of uh, recompense. And what we're saying is, in addition to everything else, it's not functional, but it's also extremely unhealthy. That essentially, if you actually believe that something's gone really wrong every time you feel a negative emotion, you're doomed to have a life of uh, increasing isolation and pain. I, mm-hmm. I say this at the end of my first book, Unlearning Liberty. 
um, that the idea that we're teaching, we're teaching students the opposite of Buddhism. <laughs> right, right. We're, we're telling them life is not pain, um, and if you experience pain, something terribly wrong has happened to you. And how much that actually that, that sets up students to, to expect that they're always in some sort of distorted, increasingly uh, threatening and harmful environment, rather than saying, as Buddhism really does, life is pain. And therefore, once you accept that as not just being a natural part of life, it becomes immediately less painful. This is Watching America. We'll be right back. This is Watching America on WHRV. Host Alan Campbell is speaking with Greg Lukianoff, president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, a New York Times bestseller. I was very appreciative in your Atlantic article that you you referenced David D. Byrne's book, Feeling Good, where he speaks about emotional reasoning, uh, which is essentially the assumption that uh, I I feel it, therefore it must be true, which takes, you know, Descartes' uh, Descartes' whole thing of cogito ergo sum into outer orbit, because instead of it being a case of I think, therefore I am, it becomes a case of I feel, I feel offended, therefore you are unworthy of your opinion and you are unworthy, period. And I'm encountering that all the time. Critical thinking is no longer taught, uh, even in the most uh, prosaic, simple way um, that could be presented even in the high school. I mean, my students have no understanding of what a syllogism is. They have no understanding of anything other than pretty much bumper sticker reasoning, which is no reasoning at all. It's just incomplete statements. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, um, one of the things that also is making things worse, and we talk about, um, uh, we talk about six uh, explanatory threads about why we think the break was so dramatic, why, the, why Generation Z, as they're sometimes called, showing up on campus had s- such different symptoms <laughs> than, than previous groups. And one of them um, that John and I both have talked about for, for years, even before we knew each other, is political polarization and political sorting, um, that essentially you end up, we've ended up over the past several decades in the United States increasingly moving to counties and towns that are more politically homogeneous. Mm. At the same time, we have technology like social media that allows us to sort even further according to political, along political lines, and we have a tendency to um, be homophilous, like, like, like. So people get together on the basis of shared beliefs. And the social science is really strong on what happens if you are in a politically homogeneous group. You tend to uh, polarize as a group, group polarization. You tend to become more uh, more um, convinced in the direction of that group. And so some of the things that you're probably dealing with, with your students as well, is that a lot of them um, are probably from environments where they had very little political disagreement, um, where they're, they're simply not used to being challenged in that way nearly as much as anybody growing up in a regular, you know, working class town would have taken for granted. I start one of my classes um, with four lies. I give them literally an astronomical lie, uh, which is in relation to Earth. I say, you know, we're the closest to the sun in summer because it's hot and humid here, which we're not actually on on basically fourth grade science. We know that the, the Earth is tilted. And so we're actually closest to the sun in, in winter. Uh, then I give them a meteorological lie about the sunshine state, Florida. And I tell them, you know, Florida has very little rain when, in fact, it has the highest other contiguous states, uh, the highest rainfall. And I go on in, in such a fashion. And I say to them, do you realize I've lied to you four times? 
And they're astonished. And then I explain the lies. And I say, you must ask this question of everything you encounter. Is this true? Not that you like it, not that you believe it, not that you reject it. The question is simply, is it true? And how do you know? So um, the, the whole basic tenets of, of reasoning is, is absent. And I don't know what the remedy is. Do you have hope academically for the future? Um, I have moments of, of, of despair. <laughs> I, I look at some of the things. I visited Haverford. Um, I give a lot of talks mm. uh, to, to, to students. And just as we say in the book, we're, when, when I go to more working class or, or state schools, I don't see as much of the pronounced um, what is roughly called sort of political correctness problem. Mm. Um, it's not, at least it's not as dramatic. Uh, but I went to Haverford and I talked to a student body when they were able to talk to me in relative um, uh, or, or relative privacy, um, they were saying, listen, people have just given up arguing about stuff here, um, that, that there's such a tendency to pile on um, and just get everybody to conform. Um, it's, it's extremely conformist. Um, and of course, they don't think of themselves that way. But if you're, if you're saying everybody has to toe the line, that's, that's exactly what it is. And I, I left there, and I, when I, after I gave, the, I gave a talk there, and it definitely I could feel it. The room was just different than anyone I'd talked in. And then the questions were very representative of this sort of like, well, how do we get back to what we already believed? <laughs> Right, right. You know, um, so that depresses me. But at the same time, there's some really fundamental things, really basic things that college and universities haven't been doing um, that we can't throw up our hands in um, frustration before all of them start doing. And one of them is make it part of orientation. Um, explain uh uh, explain freedom of speech, but explain the philosophy behind it. That that it's actually really it's actually really quite a deep philosophical idea if you if you figure out why we believe in it. Explain academic freedom. Explain scientific method. All these things, all the, all these aspects that allow for critical thinking, and have it taught by the faculty. You, got, you don't want this taught by the administrators. It'll end up being uh, possibly the exact opposite of what you want. You've raised that, and I, I want to pursue that because I think I I suspect a lot of this is coming from administrators. In fact, I've witnessed it at various schools over the years. Um, I'll give you another personal example. I had a student on one occasion uh, where I was just collecting papers, and, and it was a very, very relatively easy assignment. Uh, I think it was five to eight pages, just a uh, survey of thought on a particular issue. And I was collecting the papers, and I had one student who didn't have it, and I said, I'm sorry, um, do you have your work? And the student, no, I haven't got it. And I said, uh, why don't you have it? And innocently, I just asked that. You know, I don't know, couldn't think of things. I said, um, okay, well, that's really not a sufficient answer, but okay, um, we need to talk after class. Student comes up to me, you know, I don't like what you did. What did I do? You, uh, you made him feel bad. I'm sorry? You made him feel bad by, you know, letting it be known that he didn't do the paper. I said, well, okay, first of all, let him address that, if you don't mind, the student. This was at another school a long time ago, and I'm called into the dean's office, and I said, hello, and how can I help you? Well, we got this report that um, you evidently uh, said something or negative about a student not handing work in. I said, well, it's, it's true. Well, did you consider that might hurt their self-esteem? Um, well, perhaps, you know, if you don't hand work in that's required for school and you're enrolled in a, in a school, it, it might be a good thing that it hurts your self-esteem a little bit. And what I found was, is I, I was saying to myself, would I have encountered this kind of dialogue, this this interaction with a dean over just simply saying to a student collecting papers, I'm very sorry, you should have your work and you don't have it. Uh, and the, the emphasis is on the student self-esteem over just stating the obvious. Moreover, another student is outraged because I just 
asked for it and it wasn't there, the paper. And I, and I didn't go on. I didn't go on a diatribe or, you know, just go berserk on the student. I just, okay, I'd like to speak to you after class. But it was as though a professor does not anymore have the license to even say, I'm very sorry, you're supposed to have this work in today. You can't even do that. Yeah, and that's actually, when we talk about causal threads, the one that's most specifically related to universities themselves um, is the hyper-bureaucratization of universities. And w part of what you see in there is that, one, you have administrators who, who think of the, their job as making the experience as nice as possible for the students, yeah. um, which, of course, creates situations where you're not supposed to say anything, you know, that could hurt, hurt their self-esteem. Right. Um, you also sometimes have, and I, I, I covered a really horrifying example of this in my first book, um, Unlearning Liberty, of administrators who really buy into this very... Um, simplified uh, uh, hero versus good versus evil sort of um, social justice narrative. And there was a case at University of Delaware where it was um, administrators had created themselves, and it was this basically 24-hour uh, uh, a program of just browbeating people into br believing all the tenets of their uh, of, of the sort of social justice idea that they had, that the administrators had. And it really defies description. We, I devoted an entire chapter to showing how heavy-handed this was. Um, and when the faculty found out about it, they were angry for multiple reasons, not the least of which is that this was content. This was, this was actual academic content, but being fed to them as truth as opposed to take it or leave it or evaluate yourself critically, um, a place running more like it was a religious <laughs> seminary rather than a, than a university. So I, I do actually think administrators make things a lot worse, unfortunately. To be fair, sometimes administrators are the ones coming to us asking for help with students who want to censor people or students who want faculty members to get punished. But I have seen cases where if it's if a uh, where there's a professor right now at Sarah Lawrence College who uh, wrote an article for the New York Times saying uh, that uh, administrators lean even farther to the left generally than, than the professorate, that's uncontroversial to my knowledge. As far as I'm pretty sure, like that, that's something I've never seen anything contradicting it, and mostly evidence supporting it. Um, and suddenly, students started uh, demanding that this professor be fired. And that's one where I'm looking at it going like, really, this, this was just students who thought of this when really the only, the only part of the institution he was attacking, if you can call it that, were administrators. So I, I do think that, that unfortunately administrators are uh, empowering this. They're sort of facilitating it. And I think in some cases they're teaching the kind of um, uh, lessons to students that actually cause some of these situations. Well, you speak about the fragility of uh, of the perception of, of young people today, and certainly it, it was brought home to me again on, on one occasion. I, I teach a very basic course, uh, film appreciation. I have about 200 students that come into the auditorium, and I had a, a young woman uh, come up to me and she said, I need to tell you I don't deal well with conflict. And I thought, was she told about me? What she? I said, I don't quite follow. What do you mean? She says, I don't like uh, issues that are presented that have conflict in them. Well, the basic rubric genesis of drama is conflict. So I'm looking at this woman incredulously, and I'm thinking, like, how do I explain to her that there is no drama, there's no story, there's no narrative worth engaging uh, if there isn't conflict? I mean, this is the level we're at, uh, you know, not to mention safe spaces throughout. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about safe spaces is that I've just heard so many different definitions of what people actually mean by safe spaces. I always have to sort of clarify what, what you're talking about when you're talking about safe spaces. When it comes to having a safe space where you're saying, like, this is a group, uh, this is an area for LGBT students to hang out, 
um, and this is our, you know, quote unquote safe space, it, it, it means not much more than this is an affinity group where we, we hang out with people who um, are LGBT. Um, but, for example, University of Chicago sent out a letter that was much maligned that said uh, we are, among other things, that we don't guarantee intellectual safe spaces. And this got quoted as if what they were saying was we don't allow the LGBT group to have its quote-unquote safe space. But what they are saying by having intellectual modifying it is that, yeah, if you have your affinity group, we're not going to do anything to make sure that members of your group aren't disagreeing with you <laughs> aren't challenging where you're coming from but well i would i would challenge you though uh, respectfully mm-hmm. on on the idea of this the term safe space in any format because what you're saying is this is a relegated area that is safe and everywhere else for an lgb or anyone of of islamic background or any minority group that you want to choose it it, it implies that it creates a mania of paranoia that's not necessary I object to that because not because I object to the groups. I have no problem with the people, the groups. Mm-hmm. What I object to is this notion that we are creating that people are not safe and uh, there's menacing factors that want to attack them all the time. And it creates complete paranoia and anxiety on a level that's not necessary. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because, and you're pointing out something that we, that we said in our book too, and it's actually a major point that we make. Um, and I, I mostly because I've heard so many different definitions of safety of, of safe spaces. I, I talk about all the different types I've heard. But in the book, one thing that we do repeat over and over again is people have to stop using the word safe to just mean perfectly comfortable or some kind of unperturbed state is, is really kind of like the way they, 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 they use it. Um, safety, it, it should mean something more serious. Like if you're saying that I'm unsafe, you, hopefully you mean something serious enough uh, as opposed to just I feel mildly uncomfortable. And in the book, we talk about this as uh, safetyism, that essentially um, we have this sort of fetish around safety, that anything that someone can say will put someone in less, uh, for the first stage is less physical danger, you know, it, it, it is paramount, even to the point at which we're, we have playgrounds that are, you know, covered with bubble wrap, essentially. Um, but the next level of it is when you then take the word safety to mean anything that is even mildly disturbing or mm. mildly challenging. Mm. And we do actually think that's extremely destructive. And you're right, that actually is the implication by having uh, safe spaces that presumably that means that other places outside of the safe space are unsafe, which is, of course, nine times out of ten complete nonsense. You are listening to Watching America. We'll be right back. This is Watching America on WHRV. Host Alan Campbell is speaking with Greg Lukianoff, the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE, and co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. Let me ask you about humor. Uh, you you addressed that, and you did in the Atlantic article, and you, and you did in your work as well. Um, obviously, people like Jerry Seinfeld, Bill Marks, you know, hardly people who would be considered right at all or, or conservative. And I, I'm I'm really even on this program, I, I, I try and avoid saying left, right, and what have you, because I think it's this the, the label thing just stops people from hearing each other. But so many comics, comedians, don't want to go to college universities anymore. 
um, because of the outrage or the fabricated outrage on the part of students who will yell up at the person performing. Now, obviously, there is there is really vindictive, mean, aggressive humor without question. But somebody like Jerry Seinfeld, who is quite innocuous, benign, really, in most of his humor, certainly not a blue comic by a dist, uh, you know, reputation in any way. If he doesn't want to go to colleges anymore, Bill Maher doesn't want to do it, what does it say? I mean, my students think, and by the way, I've got wonderful students. I mean, the vast majority are fantastic. So I'm kind of emphasizing the, I guess, the dramatic exceptions here. But if, if students are going to go through life thinking they're not going to be offended. They, they, they almost think that that's part of the Constitution, like it's part of the Bill of Rights, you know, I shall not be offended, where in fact we have the guarantee of freedom of speech. Uh, humor now, people cannot discern, and we get right back to the, you know, the, the thing that Peter Bogosian said, the, the lack of nuance, to understand nuance. Humor and the appreciation of humor is an indication of intelligence, which in of itself does not, bode well for these people who are constantly offended at humor. Well, you uh, you definitely, and, and you should, and, and your audience should watch a movie that I, I helped create called Can We Take a Joke? Um, it actually came out of my experience way back in 2012 talking, uh, I did a panel at the Comedy Cellar in New York City where even the most liberal uh, comedian on the panel, he self-described that way, um, said that he didn't like playing campuses anymore because they were too uptight. Um, so we made a movie based on this that's all around the life and times of Lenny Bruce, um, you know, very iconoclastic, very mm. beloved um, uh, comedian from the 1960s, but making the point that given his material, he wouldn't last five minutes on the modern college campus. And we got Adam Carolla on it. We got Penn Jillette on it. We got Lisa Lampanelli, a whole bunch of like, uh, actually, Gilbert Gottfried is the one who really sells the show. He's hysterical in it. And it's all about this sort of retreat from freedom of speech on campuses and how it's actually devastating uh, to humor. And, and, and it's really sad because if you're not actually given the benefit of the doubt, if, if there's no principle of charity and people listening to you, then you can't do humor because like humor does rely on some amount of sophistication on the listener to be able to sort of, particularly if it's clever, if it's, if it's actually <laughs> clever humor, yeah. it, requ- it requires some interaction with the audience. And, and uh, I, I've seen case after case at FIRE um, in, in my book on Learning Liberty, where it's really clear someone is making an anti-racist joke. They're actually trying to mm. say something that might be considered woke, uh, to, to, to borrow a term, but because the, um, it's not interpreted, you know, in the most favorable light, then that, you know, that student or that professor is in, in, in hot water. Well, as a matter of fact, we have a clip from your documentary. So let's take a bite right now. After Lenny Bruce died, something remarkable happened. Was it a landmark Supreme Court opinion? No. Was it a major act passed by the Congress? No. The American culture basically came to the conclusion that never again will this or should this happen. After Lenny Bruce died, no comedian, not a single comedian in any of the states was ever again prosecuted for obscenity in a comedy club. That's a remarkable feat. And I think that's why so many comedians today revere Lenny Bruce. Guys like Pryor and Carlin acknowledge Lenny's the guy that kicked the door open for everybody. So we all owe him a tremendous debt. He was arrested for what he said. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. But we fixed a lot of that. Oh my God, yeah, we don't get arrested anymore. Our punishment is now corporate 
and you lose your gig on Comedy Central or you have to apologize because you lose a movie opportunity. When Lenny did it, it was a real penalty. It was going to jail. Lenny Bruce was sentenced to prison because uh, people didn't like his jokes. I, I should be hung. <laughs> what was the thing that you enjoyed the most about making that documentary? Oh, goodness. Um, I think it was probably getting to know uh, the daughter of Lenny Bruce. Uh, wow. That was, yeah, that, that was, and she, she doesn't appear on the film, unfortunately, but uh, she's, quite, she's quite a character. Yes. Uh, um, getting to talk to a lot of uh, different, uh, different comedians. Um, you know, what, getting to know Kareth Foster. She's one of the comedians we talk to. Um, she's an African-American uh, 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 comedian who does diversity training, but she does diversity training from the point of view of learn to laugh, learn to sort of accept each other, learn to sort of talk across lines of difference, not build your, you know, perfect rhetorical fortress and hide in it. Um, and the and and also when we when we started doing big events with it, the kind of questions you get from the audience, I, I think I think that some of the interaction with the audience who'd seen it has been some of the most rewarding stuff. Let's talk about toughness or the lack of it. To what extent do you think America is becoming weak with subsequent generations? Well, that's a reference to all these other things I've written, but I wrote something called Freedom from Speech uh, back in 2014, where I talked about the threats to free speech coming out of what I call in that book, Problems of Comfort, that essentially as societies get more affluent, as they are able to uh, escape from pain and toil and all these kind of stuff, you shouldn't be surprised that become less tolerant of freedom of speech um, because they have less experience with the painful process of, of disagreeing. So I actually see some of the... Um, and we, we, we talk about that in Coddling the American Mind as problems of progress. But I do think that some of what we're seeing is, you know, the, the negative side of otherwise positive things. But these are uh, students who, as I mentioned before, have had less interaction with people who disagree with them. Um, they are uh, students who generally have had uh, a long, uh, the, the luxury of a much longer period to grow up, um, something we, from a book called uh, iGen that we talk about, that a lot of the, um, you know, the, the milestones that many of us passed when we were very young are now being passed by people in their uh, late teens and early 20s. Uh, for, for example, something that, that uh, John and I do now at a lot of talks, uh, John Haidt, my co author, um, is we ask um, people uh, in the audience, when were you first allowed to go to the corner store by yourself, for example? When were you first, quote unquote, let out, um, as we say? Mm. And for me, it was, it was five. Um, I would be able to go down to the, buy a comic book and come back home. And every time we do this with people from Generation Z, uh, it's always somewhere, unless they're from a different country, and that we did have a friend of this once, um, the, the age is somewhere between uh, 12, 11, 12, and 16. Yeah. Um, and so we do have a situation where uh, what it means to be <coughs> of college age now means having a lot fewer challenging um, grown-up experiences than, than most of m most of the rest of us, and frankly, in human history, had um, uh, had previously. So I do think that there is a shift, and I do think that um, partially because it sounds just like curmudgeonly old men talking about kids today, um, there was a little bit of a taboo about pointing out that yes, it's actually to be expected. If things are going well, people get 
for lack of a better word, a little softer. Mm -hmm. And that's not the worst thing in the world. It is bad, however, if nobody can say that there's nothing valuable about having challenging experiences, having things that actually foster an internal locus of control, a sense of competence, a sense of what you, what, what you said as, as toughness is actually healthy for you, as long as that's not a bad word. But unfortunately, saying giving some of this advice is treated as almost taboo right now. We have uh, some school systems around the country, as I understand it, that will not give uh, school uh, students in elementary, junior high or high school anything less than a 60. That means that if they don't do any work whatsoever, they still get a 60. Mm -hmm. Now, the reasoning behind this, I do not understand. I, I, I would love to go to some of these school boards and say, hey, I've got an idea. When your teachers don't show up, why don't you give them 60% of their salary and see how that goes? <laughs> um, but it seems to, the, the effort seems to preclude, want to preclude natural failure, or may I dare say warranted failure. No one's allowed to fail. Yep. Yeah, and it's it, it's interesting because I, I read a book. I think it was called "Myth of the Spoiled Child," just to make sure that um, you know to, to read someone who who was considered a dissent from my my and John's point of view on a lot of this stuff. Um, and I was really shocked by how flimsy it was because it was just saying that well, I, there's no evidence that children are uh, children are spoiled. It was really just debunking studies. But then going immediately to but think about all the pain that's caused to students when they have to experience failure, and it really emphasized like how awful it would be if we didn't act if we didn't do these things that might be considered coddling or, or, or pampering. And that just blew my mind because what I remember, because I'm first generation American, my mom's British and my father's Russian, mm -hmm. we were pretty poor, poor when I was a kid. And I got very used to failing being no big deal in different right. ways. So it yes. wasn't as if it created greater pain for me. It made actually something that could devastate some of my friends kind of like, oh, well. <laughs> and I'll get up tomorrow. <laughs> and, the, and the idea, like, it was this really weird kind of hydraulic idea that, that essentially um, <laughs> uh, that pain will always hurt just as much if we consider it difficult. But the idea of, like, we can't let these students fail, well, are we just going to lie to them about their competence for uh, forever? And I think the answer, unfortunately, a lot of these schools is yes, we're we're going to just, you know, pretend as if the person at the bottom of the class is just as good as the person at the top of the class at this, um, and then just leave it to employers to have the rude awakening of having someone who thinks that they're a you know, Six Sigma genius um, uh, working on something that they really have no clue about. If you're just joining us, you've been listening to Watching America with Greg Lukanoff. Uh, Lukanoff, is, uh, did I get it right that time? Greg Lukianov. Lukianov. I'm so sorry. I'm mutilating this, this poor man's uh, people, name. And, and, uh, that doesn't bother me at all. Talk about failure. I, I get my name mutilated. Well, you're extremely also. gracious to me. Thank you. You can call me Alan Kimball if it will even the score. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but along with Jonathan Haidt, uh, Greg wrote the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which started out as an article actually in The Atlantic and then became full force uh, best-selling book. And we're delighted to have him here. I want to conclude by uh, creating this imagery, if you won't mind. Imagine you're in Dodger Stadium, Greg. On the left-hand side of Dodger Stadium, in, in all of the stands, are students. And you can say one thing to them. And on the right-hand side of the stadium are adults, parents, and administrators at universities. And you can say one thing to them. So let's start with the left you're going to talk now to the students themselves. What do you want to say to them? 
Oh, goodness, there's so many things I want to say to them. I would say lately, um, I, I would just give them sort of a lesson about freedom of speech, and which is not taught. Um, but freedom of speech is about knowing the world as it really is. You are not safer for knowing less about the world in which you live. Every time you shut people up, you are saying, I will be better off for not knowing the, uh, what you really think or what the world is really like. And to the people on the right, comprised of parents and university administrators. A gap year. Um, I would say uh, have your students that universities should favor uh, in admissions, and parents should be in the practice of, of allowing for students to do something in between college and high school that allows them to have some independence, to, de- to, de- to develop an internal locus of control, to develop some self-motivation and discipline. And, and that should be um, not mandatory, uh, but definitely I, I think that if more parents did that, you'd see a lot less of what we're seeing on campus because some of these students learning to um, handle things on their own and think for themselves, I think many of these problems would start to be ch- would chip away. I must conclude by asking you one very important question, because after all, you are the founder of this institution. What is the foundation for individual rights in education? (laughs) Well, I'm not the founder, but I I did join very early on, and we're celebrating our 20th uh, anniversary this year. FIRE is the leading defender of free speech, due process, and academic freedom on campus. Um, So if you hear about a student or professor getting in trouble for what they say, um, there's a good chance that you heard about it because we've put it out in, in, into the press. Um, this is we, we, we get about a thousand case submissions a year. We write a guide to freedom of speech on campus for students to know how not to get in trouble. We write a guide to to, to do process on campus. Um, we've been incredibly successful in defending the rights of faculty uh, faculty and students. Um, but now we've got a much bigger job, which is about educating um, a, a generation about the value and the philosophy behind freedom of speech. Speech and due process, which is a which is a more challenging uh, job, but we're rising to the challenge. We've been talking to Greg Luklianov, uh, who is co-author with Jonathan Haidt of the Coddling of the American Mind, and it has been a delightful hour, and we are so grateful. A delightful time with you. A real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, yours truly, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.